What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Participando en un sinfín de variadísimas actividades en un entorno seguro y 100% angloparlante. Acompañados en todo momento de Monitores Vaughan. Campamentos de verano para niños. No abandones tu inglés. Las plazas vuelan, así que llama ya al 91-133-5832. 91-133-5832. ¿Cómo tú ves tanta, tanta pasión en lo que hacen, tanta dedicación? Porque luego tienes a lo largo del máster, tienes feedbacks con ellos. Y ellos te dicen exactamente cuáles son tus puntos débiles, cuáles son tus fortalezas, cuáles son tus weaknesses, debilidades, ¿no? ¿Sabes? Y cuando ves a alguien que hace tan, con tanta pasión algo, no te viene tan natural decepcionarle. Porque si tú ves a alguien que da el 100%, a mí por, por lo menos no me viene como decepcionarte así. Es una cuestión de respeto que luego se, desa se desarrolla y se ve también con los compañeros cuando sobre todo en un método tan dinámico tan drilling class maravilloso la motivación desde el primer minuto hasta el último es un factor importante pero no el único la excelencia de nuestros profesores nuestros maestros de toda la vida esos que hacían que el resto de tu vida sintieses verdadera pasión por aquella asignatura así son nuestros profesores del máster en inglés profesional ¿Por qué no llamas? ¿Vas a perder esta oportunidad? 91-133-5833. 91-133-5833. Llama y solicita gratis tu prueba de nivel. 91-133-5833. Te sientes orgulloso de ti mismo porque tú lo puedes hacer. Con el máster en inglés profesional puedes conseguir lo que quieras. Tú lo puedes hacer. Ladies and gentlemen, we have a lot of new books that I think you will like, but there's one that you really should have, in my opinion. Uh, the title of the book is very simple, English Grammar. Yes, English Grammar. 470 pages of English Grammar. It's the best English Grammar book on the market. For me, it's the best English Grammar book in the world. The author, Claudia Martinez, is a veteran Vaughn teacher and a technical expert in our editorial department. And she has followed the spirit and the rigorous clarity that I have personally emphasized in the Vaughn Method for more than 40 years. This book, English Grammar, is the definitive guide to how we speak and how we construct our language today. As always, it's designed for Spanish speakers, hispanohablantes. In the book, we explain how and why. But we explain it in Spanish first, and then we give you many examples in English. We show you the structures and often we compare them to the equivalent structures in Spanish. At the same time, we warn you, os advertimos, of many of the typical mistakes, sometimes important mistakes, that Spanish speakers often make. English Grammar, you can buy it in bookshops, large and small, in department stores, on Amazon, in Baugantiendo online, and on many other platforms. This book is for you. It's for your children. And it's for your grandchildren. This book will last for a hundred years. 
There's no better Christmas or birthday present. English Grammar. Western civilization, from Mesopotamia to Silicon Valley. I'm your host. My name is Guy Williams. And on today's program, I'm going to talk about the financial consequences of the enormous public debt, government debt, right? Um, deuda. It's spelled D-E-B-T, but we do not pronounce the B in debt. In in. France and in England, and this was a result of the War of Spanish Succession. Louis XIV made sure that his grandson was placed on the Spanish throne, Philip V. And then Louis XIV, at a very advanced age, uh, he died, leaving a regent in power. This regent, the Duke d'Orleans, um, had... Uh, uh, a financial crisis to handle. And uh, the, the same thing was happening in England. Uh, the, the new king, uh, German, uh, never bothered to learn English, communicated with his prime minister, I believe, in, in Latin, and didn't care very much about running the country, L- left it pretty much in the hands of parliament, which was absolutely fine with parliament. But... <laughs> What to do about the debt? England was benefited by the terms of the Treaty of Utrecht, giving them things like um, Menorca, Gibraltar, and uh, trade rights with the Spanish Empire in the Caribbean. But still, they had a lot of money uh, to to pay back. And two countries are going to, to handle this in a, in a way that uh, turns out to be relatively similar. Okay, on my last program, I was talking about John Law. John Law, born as the son of a goldsmith in Edinburgh. This was in 1671, right? This is uh, this is before the union of the two crowns, before Scotland lost everything in this horrific idea that they were going to send a colony to... Uh, the area that is today Panama, right in the heart of enemy territory. And they sent enormous numbers of people and spent everything they had on this very stupid fiasco. Uh, people began to die. Families were ruined and fortunes were lost. And as a result, really, uh, Scotland had no other choice but to unite with England. Now, at about the time that was going down, 
Law finished school, moved to London, began to chase women, began to buy clothes that he could not afford. Um, he was gambling all the time. He was a genius at mathematics. And so he knew all of the probabilities, all of what in English we would call the odds, which in gambling is the same as probability, O-D-D-S, odds, and impressed everybody with his education, with his wit, with his charisma. He, um, you know, wild, impetuous, uh, lost a lot of money. His mother, um, okay, he inherited the family castle, but his mother had to buy it from him in order to pay his debts. Uh, at that time, if you don't pay your debts, you go to prison. So yes, his, his mother <laughs> rescued him more than once. His father had died when he was 12. Now, uh, one day in London, in Bloomsbury Square, Law was approached by another young man of his age, and the man drew his sword, right? Saka, Swiss Baba. Uh, Law drew the sword, and they started fighting, and the other man died. The other man was Edward Wilson. They were evidently fighting over a girl, although we do not know who the girl was. Uh, it had to be something, I mean, honor or um, or love or perhaps money, but... Um, Wilson had a, a very similar lifestyle to John Laws. Uh, they said that the king's mistress had fallen in love with Mil with Wilson, and uh, so that the, the money he was spending was was actually royal money. In any case, uh, maybe Wilson knew too much. Uh, somebody wanted to keep it quiet. After Wilson died, uh, there were all kinds of rumors about what he had been doing with whom. And so it is quite possible that Law had been persuaded to kill Wilson in order to keep Wilson quiet. In any case, dueling was illegal. Dueling was common, but illegal. And generally, people who wanted to duel did it in a discreet way. But as I say, this was Bloomsbury Square, you know, a more public and notorious venue. Uh, a venue is a place where you have an event. So they they had chosen the, uh, the the least discreet venue possible. Everybody knew. Everybody knew that Law was guilty. He was arrested, put in jail, convicted, and sentenced to death by hanging. And Law... You know, there were a lot of um, a lot of people involved in duels at that time. A lot of um, famous people. Uh, was this going to be some kind of exemplary punishment? Uh, Law was perfectly right in asking for a pardon. Uh, Law's family trying to beg for a royal pardon, and of course Wilson's family absolutely opposed to any talk of a pardon. Meanwhile, we don't know how. Law is no longer in England. He is in Amsterdam. And he is making his fortune in um, playing, playing cards, 
uh, playing other games of chance and doing the calculations because uh, there are people who who believe that this is an art, right? Gambling, we call it, jugar por dinero, gambling, that gambling is an art and other people who treat it as a science and law was one of those people who who saw the quantitative quantitative and exact side of it now think of amsterdam at the time and uh, the the bank of amsterdam and the the, the um, dutch east india company the dutch west india company all, all the things that somebody interested in finance can learn but then you have to think of the market the money market in Amsterdam, the city government had assigned official value to about a thousand different coins from all sorts of different places. And the coins that you could find in that market, well, many of them were false. Many of them were what we call counterfeit. If you look at the, uh, well, if you look at many coins today, uh, you will find that they, they have a certain pattern around the uh, borde, around the rim of the coin. You're supposed to be able to identify that pattern and know that the coin has not been shaved down, right, afilado. Because in the past, that's what people did routinely. They would um, uh, diminish the weight of the coin. And as a result, uh, many of the coins in the Amsterdam market uh, did not weigh as much as they were supposed to. You would have money changers that were arguing and bargaining over every coin, uh, whereas honest people uh, just didn't want to have to worry about all of that. So uh, the, the, the use of these coins is an impediment to the free market. And... Law thought you could do something better. In 1703, when he was, what, 34 years old, he published a pamphlet, um, 120 pages, called Trade and Money, sorry, Money and Trade, Money and Trade Considered, with a proposal for supplying the nation with money. And uh, he found uh, he found a publisher in the form of his, his aunt. He he looked at the Dutch and he said, you know, the uh, Dutch have sort of uh, disadvantages, the smallness of their territory, long winters, lack of mines, bad air, a dangerous coast, powerful neighbors. But, he wrote, the Dutch have become a rich and powerful people because they have solved their money problem. Now look at Scotland. Scotland has many advantages, a large territory, easy defense, plenty of people, good air, mines, a safe coast. All Scotland needs to do to take advantage of these natural resources is to create more money because that would make it cheaper for people to borrow and to invest and that would create jobs and transform many of the unemployed into uh, productive workers. And um, Scotland debated this. One of the uh, one of the politicians, one of the members of parliament caused it, uh, said that this was uh, going to enslave the nation. But of course, the Scottish had been very, very bad at looking out over uh, at, at their own interest in the debacle of the colony in the Darien Peninsula. 
that they couldn't they they couldn't do worse than than what they had already done. But um, yeah, uh, because of the union of crowns, uh, law was persona non grata in his native Scotland. He was still wanted for murder in England and couldn't come home. But um, years later, there he is in in Paris, and he becomes the the great friend of the Duke of Orleans, who spent his time composing operas and staying up all night with opera singers and actresses. And then all of a sudden the Duke of Orleans was regent. King Louis the Fourteenth had died. The heir apparent, the future King Louis the Fifteenth, is only five years old. Orleans understands that um, this is his moment. But at the same time, the company, rather the country, the country is, is bankrupt. The previous king had, what, forced people, forced people to turn in their silver coins to be re-minted, right? Re-acuñado. Uh, and the, the, the money they were getting back was going to be less uh, than the money they were giving. Uh, so people immediately started sending these coins out of the country to places like Amsterdam. And in desperation, Louis had to melt down his own silver furniture. So uh, trade, commerce almost collapsed. Consumption cut by 50%. Uh, land neglected, right? No, nobody wants to cultivate. Nobody has capital to invest and and the people are deeply unhappy and when french people get unhappy they let you know so yes finally at the age 44 this is this is his moment in the sun the idea that money could be paper law began printing paper banknotes then distributing paper banknotes the regent made sure that everybody understood that law had access to gold from the treasury so that those notes were good. Then, in 1717, the regent forced everyone in Paris and the area around Paris to use paper notes to pay their taxes. And so, all of a sudden, those paper notes became intrinsically valuable. In a, in a world where you have different means of exchange, right? Different, um, uh, repositories for value, like gold or silver, or pares, no, vouchers, IOUs, or bills of exchange, letras de cambio. It's the, it's the thing that the, uh, the government will accept for tax purposes that is going to win. On my last program, I, I, I talked about the uh, experiment in China with paper money. And how it was going very, very well until Kublai Khan, uh, trying to invade Japan, issued a new kind of paper money, but would not accept that paper money back into the government. And so immediately people lost faith in the paper money. And this is all a question of faith. That is when people should have understood that... Uh, Money is only as valuable as people think it's going to be. Okay, Law created something that everybody called the Mississippi Company, based on the Dutch 
East India Company. It was going to have control of Louisiana. It was going to pay 4% per year, 4% interest. And uh, people dreamed of the exploitation of Louisiana. Now, uh, because all of this was being done with the protection of the Duke of Orleans, when the capital of Louisiana was finally founded the following year, it was only natural to call that place New Orleans. Uh, this thing became bigger and bigger. The, uh, the government debt was absorbed into the Mississippi Company. The Mississippi Company was merged with other French geographic monopoly traders, uh, Asia, Africa, plus all trade in tobacco. And oh, because of, the, because of the speculation, the value of the shares in this company appreciated by, what, um, 60 times. And, um, and there he was in the Place Vendôme uh, in his home, and people were entering in the window. Um, somebody is supposed to have fallen down the chimney, and all sorts of people made their fortune at this time. Uh, this, uh, under... John Law, who at that time, you know, more powerful than Mazarin or Colbert or Richelieu had ever been. But um, people were making money. People from, from from nowhere, you know, if they had um, entered into this plan, if they had gotten in on it uh, early, were now multimillionaires. And this is precisely when the word millionaire was invented. Then Law... Um, replaced all of the different taxes that people had been paying, right? Sales tax, um, excise tax, like um, IBA, right? Value-added tax. And he replaced those with a single income tax, which was enormously popular, much more efficient. And especially the poor people were very, very happy because indirect taxation, of course, hurts poor people much more than it does the rich. Now, of course... <laughs> What was going on in the Mississippi? Is it like uh, the area around Quebec and Montreal? The French never really exploited and New Orleans either. Uh, everybody knew that the Spanish had discovered a mountain f full of silver, uh, the mountain that was entirely silver. So why couldn't there be another one in Louisiana? And so, well, uh, as was going to be common in, in England at the time, uh, transport, transport for prostitutes, criminals, army deserters, uh, homeless people. Uh, all of these people are going to be sent to the new world. But then, then something happened. The regent's other ministers in the council imposed themselves and ordered that the shares of the company should sell at a reduced rate. Not only that, they published a schedule uh, for lowering the shares and uh, they, they would all be reduced to uh, more or less their original value on December of the following year and as soon as this was announced everything began to collapse nobody wanted the notes nobody would accept the notes in exchange for anything uh, people were trying to sell their shares in the company as quickly as possible but there were no buyers uh, John Law <sighs> resigned uh, he went into exile, um, and just just a couple of years afterwards, uh, Philippe, the Duc d'Orléans, um, 
died. So that, of course, uh, John Law would never, ever be able to go back to France. Law lived out the rest of his life, died, did not uh, live his declining years in splendor. However, he had been an art collector and at the end of his life donated his art collection to the public. And we are talking about a painting by Titian, Tiziano, right? Titian, Raphael, four paintings by Tintoretto and three by Rubens. And yes, all of this um, leading to, to, to a certain amount of devastation in France in the in the 1730s, which was matched by equal devastation in England because of the South Sea Company. And both the South Sea Company and, as I say, the Mississippi Company, um, mostly as a result of the debts created during the War of Spanish Succession, just like the, um, well, just like the Great Depression, right, of the crash of Wall Street, not crack, not crack, not crack. The crash of Wall Street in 1927 was a direct result of debts accumulated during the First World War. All of the uh, all of the horrors being visited on uh, on Germany uh, in terms of reparations, the hyperinflation, the destruction of the Deutschmark practically guaranteeing that political conditions would exist for the horrors of the First World War to be repeated. Well, all of a sudden, with the fragility of the banking system, you get a massive collapse like a line of dominoes, which leads to the Great Depression, universal poverty and misery, and all of this as a a sequel to debts incurred by the First World War. But back in the early 18th century, the question of how to pay, how to pay for the, uh, how, to, how to pay for the cost of the War of Spanish Succession, the act was passed by Parliament in 1711, sorry, that, um, that almost 10 million pounds of government debt was going to be com- converted into a new company the South Sea Company, and that the debt crisis was going to be resolved instantly. Okay, I have to take a break. I'll be back in a minute. For teens. ¿Y de qué es se eso? trata eso? Es un programa intenso, intensivo, intensivo de inglés que dura una semana aquí en Madrid en un colegio mayor y son clases, clases y actividades muy chulas. Mm, mm. Año tras año. <risa> Hay niños que repiten, eh, chicos, chavales, vienen cansados, agotados. Ahora que notan el empujón que se le da al inglés, ¿eh? de verdad. Y lo más importante es que vienen con ganas de seguir. Aprendiendo, motivados, y eso es lo más importante. Una pregunta que se hará la gente que nos está escuchando, por ejemplo, que nos está escuchando fuera de Madrid. Uh -huh. ¿Algún día se hará esto de los VIP 
En otras zonas... En otras zonas de España. Lo dejamos ahí, que puede ser. Sí. Todo llega, todo, ¿Todo llega. llegará. Eh, ¿dónde? Viene gente de toda España, ¿eh? Vienen participantes sí, también es de verdad, España. Verdad. Pero bueno, hay gente que no quiere moverse mucho de su zona. Sí. Y bueno, teniendo más oportunidades de, de hacerlo... Más cerca. Más cerca bueno, de su eh, delegación. Desplazarse, sí. ¿Hay un, un sitio donde pueden informarse? ¿Una web? Eh, pues lo mejor es llamarnos. Está, ah, mejor está, es llamar. Siempre, sí, siempre. Lo mejor es llamarnos. No pueden llamar para tratar lo que queráis. Sobre todo si preguntáis por los campamentos, que es el 911335832. Sí. Ahora dilo tú. 9, un, lo mejor es llamarnos. Ok, un número. <risa> A ver, 911335832. Y ahí ya les damos información de primera mano. Nos quedan poquitas plazas, ¿eh? siempre lo decimos, no es mentira, es que como lo vamos dejando todo para el último momento, pues luego pasa lo que pasa. Puedes llamarnos al 911335832 y ahí nuestros maravillosos compañeros eh, van a informarte de todo lo relacionado con los campamentos. Nunca me cansaré de decir... El teléfono. ¿Queréis decirlo vosotros? La última oportunidad. Vale, 91. Ah, no. 1-3-3-5-8-3-2. Hasta luego. Vaughn Radio is proud to participate with the U.S. Embassy Madrid in Aula, the largest educational fair in the land. Stop by their stand for live shows, interesting interviews, and info on how you can discover all the amazing educational opportunities that await in the USA. As American blues legend B.B. King once said, the beautiful thing about learning is that no one can take it from you. We'll see you at Aula 2022 at IFEMA Madrid from March 2nd through the 6th. It's all happening at the U.S. Embassy Stand 12B10. Write it down, 12B10. Don't miss this exciting educational event. Si te acabas de licenciar, no entres en el mercado laboral ni te plantees un máster hasta no resolver del todo la cuestión del inglés. Resuelve el tema ahora, mientras eres joven y tienes tiempo. Después, es casi imposible. Y recuerda, para los reclutadores vale más un probado dominio del inglés que una docena de másters. Resuélvelo ya. Llámanos. 91-133-5833. 91-133-5833. Recuerda hacer tu prueba de nivel sin compromiso. Llámanos. 91-133-5833. Y ahora financiate el 100% del máster. Consulta condiciones en grupobaugan.com. Aquí llega Lorena Martínez con la última pregunta del examen. Vaya, parece que le ha caído el pass perfect. Lorena lleva toda la temporada entrenando el pass perfect, pero nunca ha sido su punto fuerte. ¡Wow! Eso es Lorena. Vamos, vamos. Feel the gap, Lorena. ¡Wow! Increíble. Ha acertado todas, todas. ¡Qué barbaridad! Lorena Martínez, señoras y señores, ¿qué crack? El examen es de 10. 
Consigue que tus hijos sean unos auténticos cracks del inglés. Con los cursos del Club Junior no solo mejorarán sus notas, sino que hablarán inglés de verdad y serán capaces de comunicarse. Y por si eso fuera poco, lo pasan genial en clase. Club Junior son las clases para niños de 4 a 17 años en grupos muy reducidos y 100% método Baugan. Infórmate ya en el 911335832, 911335832 o en grupobaugan.com. Mi hermano Raúl se está preparando para ser piloto. Lleva 500 horas con el simulador de vuelo y mañana es su primer vuelo real. Con 500 horas de simulador estará súper preparado, ¿no crees? ¿Quieres subir con él mañana en su primer vuelo? Y por otra parte, mi novio Tomás también se está formando como piloto. Pero solo tiene 5 horas de simulador, no 500 como mi hermano Raúl. Sin embargo, ya ha llevado un aparato arriba 5 veces y lo ha aterrizado con éxito. Si no, ya no sería mi novio, ¿verdad? No tiene 500 horas de formación como mi hermano, solo 10 entre simulador y vuelo real, y mañana llevará el aparato arriba por sexta vez. Si tuvieras que subir con uno de los dos, ¿con quién subirías? Para nosotros, al menos psicológicamente, una hora de vuelo real equivale a 100 horas de simulador. Subiríamos seguramente con mi novio Tomás a pesar de sus pocas horas de formación. Para hacerse con un total dominio del inglés, la cosa es exactamente igual. Una hora en Bontown, superando la ansiedad y los apuros de comunicación, equivale a 100 horas de clases de inglés. Nunca vas a hablar un inglés perfecto, ni lo hablo yo. Tengo mis momentos elocuentes y mis momentos menos elocuentes en mi propia lengua materna, que es el inglés. Así que repito, nunca vas a hablar un inglés perfecto. Ahora bien, si quieres tener un perfecto dominio de los entornos de comunicación en mi idioma, algo muy diferente, vete a Bowentown. Allí, entre angloparlantes de los más variopintos, avanzarás mil kilómetros en confianza, convicción y aplomo. Dominarás los entornos de comunicación a pesar de un dominio aparentemente imperfecto del inglés. Who's ready for another Vaughn Radio Trivia Night? Next up, Guy William hosts. Get ready for a night of fun and friends. It's Vaughn Radio Trivia Nights at Roll Madrid. Calle de Amaniel 23. Join us March 1st at 8.30 p.m. with your host, Guy Williams. Vaughn Radio Trivia Nights. Are you ready to be challenged? It's the new show that everybody is crazy about. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. This is Western Civilization. 
from Mesopotamia to Silicon Valley. I'm your host. My name is Guy Williams. And on the first part of the program, I was talking about um, parallel destruction of the French economy and the British economy because of speculation. And in both cases, the government, with a huge amount of debt acquired during the War of Spanish Succession, is opting to recycle that debt through the shares in a private company. In the case of France, what was called the Company of the Mississippi, and in the case of England, the South Sea Company. Now, just as there was nothing in the Mississippi that France ever had any intention of exploiting. There was no way that they could make a profit out there. They really didn't have the, the money or the resources or, or the intention of colonizing Louisiana in a big way. And it was exactly the same problem that they had with their other possessions further north, Quebec and Montreal. Well, the, the British, uh, okay, the South Seas, um, when Balboa first climbed up the Darien Peninsula and looked over the other side and saw the Pacific Ocean for the first time. It was not called the Pacific Ocean. Pacific Ocean, that um, that name came later. That name came with uh, Magallanes, right, with Magellan. Magellan was the first person to call it the Pacific Ocean. When Balboa was looking at it, it was located directly south, right, because the um, uh, the Darien Peninsula has a kind of an S shape. And and so he simply called it um, El Mar del Sur. And this was immediately translated into English as the South Sea. And, um, you know, we kind of maintain that. Um, it, it became plural, the South Seas. And now in English, when we talk about the South Seas, generally we're referring to uh, the South Pacific, that area around the uh, South China Sea, all the way down to Australia. And yes, we, we we use the term South Seas, but often in a poetic way, you know, picturesque way, it, it sounds so good. So yes, you, you will see the term South Seas used by a, a travel agency, for example. But this goes... This, the South Sea Company, goes back to the the original, what Balboa was talking about. Exploitation of the Pacific after Britain finishes with the Caribbean. Obviously, at this time, Britain had a strong place in the uh, Lesser Antilles, Barbados. Britain was there in the Bahamas, in Bermuda, and of course in Jamaica. But under the terms of the Treaty of Utrecht that ended the war of Spanish succession, Britain had also been given the Asiento de Negros, right, the uh, rights to transport slaves across the Middle Passage and to become the uh, supplier of slaves to the Spanish Empire. In addition, there was another Asiento, there was another concession and I have forgotten the name, Asiento uh, de uh, Navío, something like that. In any case, uh, they were going to be able to trade so that you would have British goods being sold from a British ship in Spanish markets all around the Caribbean. And, of course, the uh, the ship 
in question was a large one, but the possibilities of uh, picaresca the, uh, are, are endless. And the British are going to take full advantage and engage in major, major contraband so that um, the ship will sell its cargo and then simply go back to Jamaica and fill the hold with more British merchandise and then go and sell it. And, of course, before this time, the, in Spain, there were, there were many, many things that uh, Spain could not provide its empire with. And there were, there were all sorts of capricious rules. You know, just, just one example. Um, um, Mexico was growing its own wine. And then at one point in the 18th century, Spain declared that Mexico would have to depend entirely on Spanish-grown wine and pay those prices or, or simply <laughs> stop drinking wine altogether. And the result was that Mexico stopped drinking wine altogether. And that uh, Mexico, which up until that time had been producing very good wine, was now forced to look for other things. Pulque, for example. And so in the 20th and now the 21st centuries, uh, you get uh, wine producers in Mexico who can grow truly extraordinary wines, but have to, to work very hard to, to convince people to drink it because there is no market. In any case... Um, there was a lot of smuggling going on, right? Uh, to smuggle, contrabandear. There were many smugglers and clandestine markets. And so, yes, you could go into the house of a Spanish official, a representative of the Spanish government, and maybe you would see an object there, a piece of furniture that was, that was clearly English. And you would have to ask yourself, uh, how did that get there? Well, everybody knew how it got there. However, now with the, um, this, this new arrangement post Utrecht, all of a sudden you began to see merch, uh, English merchandise everywhere in Spanish America, and everybody could claim that it had been purchased legitimately under the terms of the new treaty. But, you know, the, the the potential for growth was relatively limited. However, don't tell anyone involved in the South Sea Company that that market cannot be exploited because the people in the South Sea Company believe that Spanish America is now their, their oyster. Meanwhile, the British national debt is somewhere about... Um, 30 million pounds, and all of this was going to be transferred into the company. Now, the Chancellor of the Exchequer at the time, uh, Robert Walpole, was totally opposed, but Parliament was euphoric, and and there was a great spirit of speculation, right? Think of it, we could be rich. And in 1720, the price of South Sea shares really really began to rise. Three months later, they had almost doubled in value. With the South Sea Company, there were all sorts of other companies that just, they, they, they started from nothing and uh, they began to balloon. Uh, everybody was investing, investing heavily. And of course, when you talk about the South Sea, um, when you talk about the sea in general, when you talk about water, it is very logical to think of bubbles because of what happens. Bubbles inflate and then 
bubbles burst. But this this metaphor that to explain what happens when speculation finally collapses, the uh, the resulting metaphor is is logical. But as I say, it comes from this. It comes from the bubble in the South Sea, and um, bubbles begin to appear in in um, in Hamburg. Uh, bubbles began to appear in Amsterdam. As I said, the, the metaphor of bubble, um, because speculation itself it comes from the Latin word for mirror. And so you can look into a, like a distorting mirror, where Bayern got his idea of the uh, esperpento. Or you, you simply look at mirrors that reflect each other, and you think you are seeing to infinity. So that um, speculation is also related to this, the Spanish word espejismo. Now, in English, we, we call that a mirage. We use a French word. But uh, instead of especular, if if the Spanish word were um, something like espejismar, no, the espejismo, then perhaps people would be less inclined uh, because yeah, the result is collective madness. I mean, we we all saw the case in in 2017, where the construction companies, the government, the political parties, all of these were incapable of imposing even the slightest rationality. And all of a sudden, all of the major political and economic actors became accomplices in the economic destruction and, and devastation that followed. So that it, it is easy for us to, to laugh at what the British and the French were doing in the 18th century. But we today, with better information, are equally capable of of putting our foot into it. So uh, more and more people wanting to buy shares, uh, shares now selling at £1,000 a piece. But by the end of the summer, perhaps, I don't know why, all of these economic crises come in September. But yes, um, this is another... Um, September, people people start to see things as they are. And the directors of the company began to sell shares in order to buy them back later at a lower price. In four weeks, the company lost about 75%. And uh, the result was economic devastation. Uh, the result was a severe mistrust of the financial system. And... Uh, and depression and uh, suicide and uh, actually fortunes were made. There was a philanthropist who invested 54,000 pounds and ended up with 250,000 pounds and then uh, ended up founding a hospital. The uh, Duke of Marlborough had, um, had made a, an enormous fortune. Of course, he was already... Uh, one of the richest men in England, but he he had uh, gotten into the market when it was good and gotten out of the market when it was good. Now, Marlborough, uh, Marlborough is is a name that um, practically anyone in Spain can pronounce and is familiar with. But when the Duke of Marlborough first came into Spain, uh, people didn't know how to pronounce his name, and so the name became distorted. And ended up as Mambru, or at least this is what I have heard. 
that uh, Mambru se fue a la guerra is is um, a reference to the Duke of Marlborough. You had uh, you had people like um, Isaac Newton uh, who who made terrible mistakes, right? Um, he he understood that the bubble was going to burst, so he sold his shares and got out. But then prices began to rise and rise, and so he decided that he had been premature and used his fortune to buy more shares just when they burst and lost, as I say, lost 20,000 pounds. And who knows, this might have been what was responsible, you know, the, um, all of his early discoveries that made him great and famous. He spent the second half of his life doing esoteric things, right? Uh, going through the Bible, trying to discover its hidden meaning, um, expressing interest in things like alchemy, and um, revising all of his earlier calculations because he was convinced that the force of gravity, which he had finally found a way to calculate that the force of gravity was in fact God's love. And that was what is holding the universe together. And one, one has to wonder at what was going on in his head at this point and the lost fortune that he had suffered with the failure of the South Sea Company certainly didn't help his stability. Now, of course, at no time was, was the company ever able to generate any income from trade in South America. And so there, there was, again, nothing, nothing there, uh, neither in the Mississippi system nor in the South Sea. But both are an attempt, an early attempt, to solve the question of government debt. It's, it's not really a question of whether, whether they can generate that income in the new world or or wherever the most important thing was the, the, the way to handle this debt and um additionally by the way um later on we're going to talk about the capitalist system and and how free enterprise and especially private enterprise is the great motor behind all this but if you look at history that simply isn't true all of these early systems that I'm talking about are being created in order to handle the need of the government to borrow more money. The debt of Great Britain increased from about 17 million pounds at the end of the 17th century to 30 million pounds just 15 years later and then to 60 million pounds by the middle of the 18th century, right? This was, uh, this was the time when they, they seriously began to think of um, empire as a solution. Uh, this is the time, as they say, when um, uh, King George III began to extract tax revenue from the 13 colonies without their consent, right? Unilaterally breaking common law, breaking all of the contracts just because he could, just because he was king, uh, treating the people in the colonies as if they were not Englishmen and did not have the same rights as Englishmen. And this, as I say, is where uh, the, the idea of moving into Asia in a big way gets started. If you want to 
simplify it into four four stages. The first stage of the English Empire is to rob from Spain, right? Steal things from Spain. Piracy. With certain attempts at plantations, first in Ireland, then in North America. But phase two, which I have been talking about on this program, copy the Netherlands. And as I mentioned, once the Stadtholder, once William of Orange becomes king of England, then all of a sudden you get Dutch financial prowess, right? Proetha, prowess, uh, expertise. The third phase is going to be the struggle with France all along the 18th century with this on-again, off-again war with France. I've been talking about um, what what is happening between France and England in the struggle for India and how France, together with Spain, were absolutely crucial for American independence. It would not have happened. The United States would not have happened without the help of France and of Spain. <coughs> and then, of course, all of this culminates in, you know, with the arrival of Napoleon and the Napoleonic Wars. And then after the Napoleonic Wars, France is beaten, Spain is beaten, and Britain is free to use its maritime dominance to, well, to further exploit its position in India uh, in terms of uh, financial dominance uh, to move into the Caribbean and South America in a big way. But again, that, that maritime dominance in, in large part was a result of the Battle of Trafalgar and the, um, the elimination of large parts of the French Navy and of the Spanish Navy. And that, of course, goes back to uh, Admiral Nelson, Horatio Nelson. This was at a time when um, France was preparing for a an invasion. And, of course, that, that always makes the English very nervous. They were invaded twice in 1066. The first time by by Vikings who actually had had a legitimate claim uh, on the on the throne. I mean, the uh, earlier king um, Canute had uh, united large parts of Scandinavia with with large parts of Britain. But yes, um, they invaded in the north and were beaten there at the same time that the Normans were preparing to invade in the south. Meaning that um, yeah, that the entire army had to. Uh, to to go uh, just fresh from winning the decisive battle, uh, the army had to scramble across half the country from from York all the way down to uh, to Hastings, and it's sort of no wonder that they lost this battle. That the Normans arrived, that they changed everything, and ever since the Normans changed everything in 1066, the people have been arguing whether. Their arrival was a good thing or a bad thing. And there, there has been lots of speculation about what uh, life would have been like without the Normans. But then, of course, 500 years later, you have the um, invincible armada expecting that there will be a fifth column willing to rise up, right? That, that all the old followers of Elizabeth's sister 
Mary Tudor are willing to risk everything so that Catholicism can be reimposed. But there were endless logistical problems and very bad luck with the weather. So that, yes, 1066 happened, but 1588 did not happen. Now, at the beginning of the 19th century, Napoleon's troops are massed in Boulogne, ready to invade. And the ships are there. The ships are in Cadiz. And Nelson sends out this message. Um... England expects every man to do his duty, which, of course, is famous. It's something uh, schoolboys have had to learn. And, well, every every aspect of Nelson's life is uh, something that, until relatively recently, the school children were supposed to learn. And then finally, um, in the 1940s, uh, Hitler and the planned invasion. But when that was happening in the 1940s, people were thinking about Napoleon. Uh, people were thinking about Philip II and and the Vikings and Normans as well, waiting for these invasions to happen, waiting for for another Nelson. And um, I will be talking about Horatio Nelson um, on my next program. un buen nivel de inglés, vete a Bauentown y date cuenta, nada más llegar, de que tu dominio es más cercano al cero absoluto. En inglés decimos humble pie, o sea, comer tarta de humildad. Bauentown te dará primero un rudo despertar, y conforme pasan los días, un nuevo despertar. Un despertar lleno de seguridad, confianza y convicción. Si existen los milagros, Bauentown se cuenta entre ellos. Baugan está disponible en varias ciudades de España. Para niños y niñas de 4 a 9 años. Búscalo en grupobaugan.com y apúntalos ya. Many English methods guarantee the 